0: Good morning. I'd like to welcome each of you this morning to our 11 o'clock morning worship service uh, after the first week of classes. So, some of you might have just arrived since we last met for worship last week, and we welcome you to our service this morning. Please stand with me for the call to worship. Let us sing of the Lord's great love forever. Let us declare that God's love stands forever. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. Love and faithfulness go before him. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you are with us here in this place this morning. Open our hearts, Lord, to give to you our worship and to receive from you our task for the week, to love one another better. Thank you, Father, in your name. Amen. Please remain standing for hymn number 335.
1: It is great to see you as we gather for worship today. I want to invite you to share a word of greeting, a word of peace with others who are here in worship this morning. a few things that I want to highlight in your bulletin. First of all, there is an insert in your bulletin that is kind of hard to miss, pink color. And there are a number of things on it, uh, including small groups that begin next week. If you're not a part of a group, if you haven't been a part of a group, we'd love to have you uh, make this a part of your spiritual walk. And there are a number of groups to choose from. Um, Information, contact the church office, Pastor Mike, and uh, we'll make sure that we answer any questions you have. There's also an announcement about Valentine's Banquet and the Women's Gathering coming up in the next few weeks. There are also a few things in the bulletin that I want to highlight. Tonight, we have an exciting opportunity to come together and witness, uh, I think, 12 of our young people who are going to be baptized tonight. A number of Houghton Academy students are going to be baptized this evening, and we would love to have you here supporting them and uh, engaging in this event with them. We'll meet at 6 o'clock here in the sanctuary And uh, we're just praying that God will do some great things as we gather for this exciting event in the lives of our young people. Wednesday evening, all of our ministries are on a regular schedule. Next Sunday morning, worship at 8, 40, and 11. There are always things that we're praying about, things that are very close to our hearts, things around the world. And we are asking today for for God to, to come and to intervene in each of those circumstances. And we pray because we know that God hears us. In the spirit of those words, I invite you to join me in the prayer of confession printed in your bulletin. We will pray in unison. Eternal God, you are reconciling all things to yourself. By entering our world, you revealed the depths of your love to us. In coming, you gave us life. And called us your children. You have been faithful to us, but we confess that we have not been faithful to you. You want to transform us into new creations, but we are content with the old. You want to take us to new depths, but we have settled for the surface. You have set us free, but we hold on to the chains of our past. Forgive us, Lord, for our sins, those we confess, those we hide, the sins we have become complacent with and those against our neighbor. Help us to live as citizens of your kingdom where we are hurting and broken, bring healing and restoration. Where we have doubt, help us to trust. Where we are stagnant, Give us a desire to know you greater. Jesus, may your light shine through us so that the world can see your glory and your love. May we be found faithful by you, doing even greater things through the power of the Holy Spirit and in the name of Jesus Christ until his kingdom comes. Amen.
0: The Old Testament reading is from Deuteronomy chapter 10, verses 12 through 22. And now Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in obedience to him, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to observe the Lord's commands and decrees that I am giving you today for your own good. To the Lord your God belong the heavens, even the highest heavens, the earth and everything in it. Yet the Lord set his affection on your ancestors and loved them, and he chose you, their descendants, above all the nations as it is today. Circumcise your hearts, therefore. And do not be stiff-necked any longer, for the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality and accepts no bribes. He defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow, and loves the foreigners residing among you, giving them food and clothing. And you are to love those who are foreigners, for you yourselves were foreigners in Egypt. Fear the Lord your God and serve him. Hold fast to him and take your oaths in his name. He is your praise, he is your God who performed for you those great and awesome wonders you saw with your own eyes. Your ancestors went down into Egypt or your ancestors who went down into Egypt were 70 in all. And now the Lord your God has made you as numerous as the stars in the sky. This is the word of the Lord. Please stand for the singing of the Gloria (laughs) Patri. Heavenly Father, we are incredibly blessed as we stand here before you this morning. You have blessed us in so many ways, both tangible and intangible. Open our hearts now to give back to you what belongs to you in the first place. And we thank you for what you will do with it in your name. Amen.
1: God has given us the great privilege of offering our prayers to him, knowing that he hears us when we pray. As we join together in prayer, if you would like to use the altar rail as your place of prayer, please join me. Father, we come today admitting that we wrestle with divided hearts. We're burdened about war and violence and and hatred spread so far around this world. And yet we have to admit that too often we cling to such destructive behaviors. We talk about helping others and then we are often more interested in ourselves than anyone else. And we proclaim the need for grace and and then we focus so much of our energy on our own brand of justice. In this moment of prayer, help us to see that we are powerless to change ourselves. And help us to see that your power is unlimited in making us new. Father, in on this Sunday when we join with people across the country, we think about the sanctity of human life. We pray, Father, that you would fill us individually and corporately with love and compassion for the born and the unborn, for those who agree with us and for those who do not. And we pray, Father, that you will help us to be catalysts, that you would bring an end to the disregard for human life that we see so prevalent in our society, our culture, our world. And Father, fill us with a new passion. Fill this world through us with a new passion for all of life. Father, we also pray on this weekend when when we remember the work, the service, the the influence of Dr. King. We pray that you will give to us a a new mind. a new heart, a new commitment to bring about the end of racism and prejudice and bigotry that is so prevalent. We pray, Father, that you will stir our hearts anew for people who are mistreated, who are looked down upon. And, Father, give us a burden to be Advocates for people who have no voice. To be a presence for Christ in this world of so many people who feel hopeless and helpless. And we pray that you will give to us this burden as a congregation. Father, we come today facing all kinds of stuff. We're worried about that, where that diagnosis is going to lead, and what that test might reveal. We're thinking today about people we have loved who have died. And we miss them. Life is simply not the same without them. We wonder about the tenuous nature of some of our relationships. And we wonder about healing. And we ask, Father, that you will indeed heal. We're feeling apprehensive about the next steps of life, where we're going, how we're going to get there. Where will we be in six months, a year, five years? And the uncertainty is testing our faith. Father, in every circumstance in which we come today, Every burden, we give it to you. We place it in your hands. And we thank you for your healing, comforting, restoring, leading, and guiding grace. And let us find our rest in you. Father, teach us anew this day, every day. That you are with us, that you are at work in this world, that you're at work in this place, and that we have hope, and we can choose to rejoice and be glad in you, because you are present. Deepen our realization that you are the rock of ages, and that when we cling to you, we find strength. And transformation and grace and mercy through Christ, the one who teaches us the model for prayer, which we now pray together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts
0: In the tradition of the church, please stand with me for the reading of the gospel. From Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 37. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, he replied. How do you read it? He answered, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, And who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, Please uh, remain standing for the singing of hymn number 367.
1: be seated. There are a lot of opinions about what the church should be, what the church should look like, how it ought to be defined. I suspect that if we took a poll of everyone here this morning, we probably would come up with a wide variety of answers. And I guess that should be expected because we're all different people. But there is something to be said for coming to agreement about what the church is and and what the church should look like and what is the purpose of the church. And it's with that in mind that a few years ago, uh, the elders and the pastors sat down together and, and put together a group of people to talk and to think about that very question. What is the purpose of not just the church, but our church? And after six, seven months, I don't remember exactly how long it was, we... You know, through the the process of that, of weaving it and and of drafting it and discussing it and praying over it, we brought a proposal to the congregation and we worked with that a little bit more and took it back. And eventually we came to the conclusion that is now this bookmark. And those are, I think they're all in your bulletins this morning. And uh, we want you to take those with you. We have more. We'll put them in the pews this coming week as well. And on the front of this bookmark is, is a, sort of a general overview statement of the church. Empowered by God's love, the Wesley Holmuston Church exists to draw people into a lifelong transforming relationship with Jesus Christ and his followers by exalting God joyfully, knowing God intimately, serving one another wholeheartedly, sharing Christ's love locally and globally. The next question we asked, though, was how do we get to that point? And when we get there, what will it look like? What, what does it look like if we as the Houghton Church actually reach some of these goals? And we came to the conclusion that we, we needed a vision of what that would look like, what, what that would, would appear to be. What would people see? But we wanted to make sure that whatever people saw and whatever vision we had, it had to be so much bigger. be, would be, this vision would be of God doing something in us that we could never do in ourselves, that we don't, even if we had the best ideas, we had the best plan, we had the best strategies, we, we knew the best management ideas, we could never get close to this vision because it could only be accomplished through the power of the Holy Spirit. And so, as we looked at that, as we thought about that, we created the backside of the bullet of this this um, bookmark, and we came up with twelve bullet points that, if empowered by God's Spirit, this is what we want to look like. And if you read down that list, you know if you know anything about this church, we're a long ways from those things. Let's just be truthful, right? Some of them were a little better than others, but we're a long ways from them, and that's okay. Because we wanted to talk about something, a vision that was bigger than anything we could accomplish, that we could only even think about accomplishing it in the power of the Holy Spirit. And last spring at our vision meeting, we gathered in the gym and we divided everyone up into 12 circles. And each circle took one of these bullet points and talked about how we see this, these things in our church now and, and gaps that we miss. And, and what might it look like practically if we were to see more and more of this? And it was a great discussion and I've read through all the comments and, and it's very powerful. And, and we have this, this sense of this is who we want to be. And then this fall... The elders and the pastors got together in an evening, and and we asked ourselves the question, what do we need to talk about now? You you can't focus on 12 things all at one time. So what things do we feel might be most imperative for us to talk about, to think about right now? And we divided into two groups, about eight, ten people in each group, and each group tackled that question. And after 30 or 45 minutes of talking through that and going through these, we came back together, and both groups came to the same conclusion about four bullet points. I'm thinking, okay, it seems like that might be something from God. And so it's those four bullet points that both groups independently came to a decision about that we're going to be talking about over the next few weeks. And today I want to begin by talking about What it means to embrace and love all people. It seems appropriate that we talk about embracing and loving all people during the season of Epiphany. Epiphany is the manifestation, the the revelation of God in Christ. And we typically focus on some key events in Jesus' life. The baptism of Jesus, where he reveals the nature of what his kingdom is going to be like. The sense of servanthood, that Jesus humbles himself and, and is baptized. And, and we talk about the, the first miracle that Jesus performs at a wedding in Cana of Galilee. And that God is concerned about some of the most common elements of our lives, like a wedding. And we focus on the coming of the Magi to visit Jesus. I don't think we realize how striking, how caustic that story is in Matthew's Gospel to, ...to a Jew who would be reading it. Matthew's gospel is written to Jews... ...trying to convince them that Jesus is the Messiah. And so Matthew has spent the first chapter... ...giving the background of Jesus... ...and connecting him to the to the great history of David... ...and, and, and in the lineage of David. And he comes to him and, and he's declaring... ...this is our Messiah. And then he talks, tells about pagan astrologers... ...coming to visit Jesus coming to Jerusalem, and and they're the heroes of the story, and and the Jewish scribes and and teachers of the law in Jerusalem who basically pay no attention to what they're telling them are, are apathetic about it. And in this story, we are reminded that Jesus comes not just for a small, select group of people, but for the whole world, for all people. And as the church of Jesus Christ, our calling is to embrace and love all people. Now, the minute we start talking about that, bells and whistles go off in our minds. And we start thinking that that means we say to people, everybody just come, do whatever you want, believe whatever you want, practice whatever you want, because we're not about, you know, we're not about talking about that. We just want you to come. And that's not what I'm talking about. We do not, in the the call and welcome of all people, we are not eliminating our biblical standards. We are not eliminating the importance of truth. We are simply saying that the commitment to truth and welcoming and, and loving all people don't have to be mutually exclusive. We can commit ourselves to truth and welcome and love all people. And that's the tension. We are fully committed to the truth of God's word. We are fully committed to to our doctrine and and the core elements of what we believe. But we, we have decided that we're going to communicate that truth and we're going to live out that truth. We're going to embody that truth in a spirit that communicates welcome and love to all people. And part of our problem in doing that is that we tend to be people, when we start proclaiming the truth, who give off this image of we're better than everybody else. You know, we've arrived and you've got a long way to go. We, we, we've got the secret and you don't. And we say that in a very arrogant way. And this bullet point is trying to call us Not just to this sense of welcome, but how we communicate truth as the people of God. Our default mechanism as human beings is to judge. How many times have you found yourself in a situation and, and something comes up that you're uncomfortable with, and the first response is judgment? That quickly moves into judgmentalism we like to judge and jesus knows that our problem our struggle is far less about being too open than it is being too closed in the evangelical church our problem more often than not is not that that we have opened our arms too wide it's that we keep closing our arms to people who are different from us, people who think different than we do, people who have a different ideological perspective about things, people whose lifestyle is different from us. And we start closing ranks instead of opening. It's, it's human nature. And unfortunately, the church has a reputation for looking for ways to judge instead of looking for ways to embrace. In October, I saw an article in the New York Times about an event called Mix It Up at Lunch Day. I don't know if anyone has heard of that. But it, it is a, something created by the Southern uh, Law and Poverty Institute. And, and out of this, the whole point is that they're trying to, to do, take some steps to prevent and eliminate and minimize bullying in our schools. And so the idea is that if you spend time with someone, if you get to know someone, you probably are going to be less apt to treat them poorly. And we all know that's true in our relationships. And so on this day, uh, students are assigned seats in wherever they eat with other students that they would normally never spend time with, never talk to, have no connection with. And the idea, again, is that if you sit across the table next to someone that you've never sat next to before, you might strike up a friendship or, at the very least, see them as human and begin to break down barriers and walls and maybe treat them more appropriately. This has been going on for this is the 11th year they've, they've done this, and I think there are 2,500 schools that are participating for some reason, this year, an evangelical parachurch church group sent a letter out, an email out to all of their supporters and said, this is simply a veiled uh, attempt to promote the homosexual agenda in our schools. And, and so, because a lot of the bullying uh, are about children who may be perceived as gay... And so this is a veiled attempt, they said. And we want to encourage you to don't send your kids to school that day and call the principal to make sure they know why you're not sending your children to school that day. Now, i got to be honest with you. I don't know if there's some underlying thing going on with this day. I don't know if maybe it is some kind of veiled attempt to promote an agenda. I, I just don't know that. But I do know that when all the dust settled... The Christians weren't the people who looked like they loved and cared about children. And the Christians were the people who took, who it just seemed like this was an attempt at the very first look at. We see something and our first response is to judge. And we come across in a way that does disservice to Christ and his kingdom. And the church far too often presents that image to people. And yet, when we read the New Testament, where what do we see Jesus doing? Running from people who have a totally different lifestyle than he's promoting. Being judgmental to people who disagree with him. Uh, and, and running from people that everyone else says you shouldn't hang around. No, we see him right in the middle of them. And he's not saying it doesn't matter how you live, that you know, I, I haven't come to, to try to change you. The whole point is he wants to transform their lives. And the only way to do that is by being with them and, and loving them and embracing them as friends. I've come to the conclusion that, that most people who say they reject Christianity on, on intellectual grounds... If you peel back the layers enough, actually have a very deep emotional reason for rejecting Christianity. Some A Christian hurt them, the church rejected them, they, they were snubbed, they were, they were mistreated, and it just opened up their mind and their heart to be ready and willing to reject everything about Christ. And the only way to change that, the only way to get through to that is loving them, is caring about them, being a presence with them. And again, we're not saying it doesn't matter how people live, the the truth makes no difference. That's not the point. It's holding it in tension that we're fully committed to the truth of the gospel. And we welcome and embrace all people with all of our being, just like Jesus. And that's the call of the gospel. That's the call of the church. And that brings us to the New Testament Scripture reading this morning. You would think that some of these people would would figure out that when you come and ask Jesus questions to test him, it doesn't end well for you. You know, you would... Uh, it, do these keep coming? Finally, you get near the end of the gospel, like, okay, that's it. We're not asking any more questions. You know, once again, they walk away with their tail between their legs. So this guy comes to test Jesus. How do I inherit eternal life? What a great question. What a great question. Everybody's asked one really deep down. We're all asking that question. How do I get to heaven? How do I inherit eternal life? And Jesus turns it back on him as he often does. What do you think? What, is this, what do the scriptures say? Well, love the Lord your God, though your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says, yeah, that's right. That's it, in a nutshell. You've got it. And you think the guy would say, okay, walk away. No, he just keeps pushing. Who is my neighbor? And when I think about neighbor, I think about the people who lived around us at, at our house at 1701 North Thomas Avenue in Evansville, Indiana when I was growing up. I think about the, some of the guys who lived next door to me in the dorm who loved to play music as loud as they could at 1 o'clock in the morning. Or the guy that lives on the other side of me, who we nicknamed Mooch, because whenever you got a care package, he's like he had this sixth sense of knowing there's food somewhere in somebody's room. And even if you weren't there, he might be in your room taking your food. And, and, And I think about the woman whose house abutted the parking lot in our church in Wisconsin, and who she had really negative feelings about the church. There have been some problems, and and we had the opportunity to befriend her and help her some and and build a relationship with her. And honestly, she was a very eccentric woman. I remember going into her house for the first time and, and just taken back by these stacks and stacks and stacks, just hundreds of stacks of newspapers, magazines, little shopper ads that come in your mailbox. Some of them were still in the plastic wrappers. From... 20, 30, 40, 50 years. I mean, it was un- I've never seen anything like it in my life. It's unbelievable. She kind of wound your way through the maze of all this stuff to get into her house. As her, as, as her health deteriorated and her mind a bit, you know, her, her daughter finally had to had to take her into her home. But her, her daughter told me once, as that was sort of beginning to happen, she said, my mom really liked you and your family and has to go over there with the boys and, and she loved the children and she said, "But she feels really sorry for you." And I said, "Why?" She said, "Well, she told me that she feels bad that the church doesn't pay you enough, because every Sunday he has to fill the parking lot with cars and then sell them off all morning, and so he can support his income, and every week he has to keep selling off all the cars in the parking lot that come to park there. So you might as well just give your keys to the ushers as you go out this morning, because you won't need them anymore by the time the service is done. I have a plan. We've got a budget deficit, and we're going to work on that. <laughs> and, you know, we think about those neighbors, those people. Jesus says, I have a little different twist on that. And he tells them the story. And, again, we cannot understand how shocking this story would be to Jewish listeners, particularly to a teacher of the law. Samaritans and Jews despise each other. They hate each other. You know, they, there's this long, 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 long history between them. And Jesus tells a story where the Jewish teachers are the, are the bad guys and the Samaritan is the good guy. I'm trying to contextualize that for us. And, and I, all I could think of was that an American's walking down the road. He's jumped, robbed, beaten, left for dead. And along comes a Catholic priest and he walks across the other side of the road and past him. And here comes an evangelical pastor and he goes to the other side of the road and walks past him. And here comes a Muslim, maybe a member of the Taliban. And he sees this guy and he stops. And he helps him and he takes him to a hospital and he pays for everything. I don't like that story. And Jesus says to the guy So, who's the neighbor? You notice he doesn't say the Samaritan. He's not going to use that term. He's not going to mention that name. And I can almost see him. We don't always read it that way. I haven't always read it that way. But I suspect he answered him through gritting teeth. The one who showed him kindness. And then walked away. And Jesus says, go do likewise. And Jesus says, you want to love people? You want to embrace people? He talks about this Samaritan who has pity, compassion on this guy lying by the side of the road. And That word, you know, it's is something that comes from deep within you, this emotion that you feel that moves you to action. It's the word that is used to describe Jesus, his feelings when he looks on the crowd and he sees that they're harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And he ministers to them, he heals them, he teaches them, he helps them. That's the word used in the parable of the, the, the servant who owes a master such a huge amount of money, he couldn't pay it back in 20 lifetimes. And the master takes pity on him, has compassion on him, and he forgives the debt. And, and it's, it's the word used to describe the response of the, of the prodigal son's Father who sees his son coming back down the road and he has compassion on him, he takes pity on him and he runs and embraces him in his arms and says, welcome home, son. Let's have a party. If we're going to embrace and love people, it can't just be with our words. It's feeling compassion for people. It's loving them from deep in our being. And it's love that moves us into action. Because we can talk all we want to about loving people. It doesn't mean anything until we see something. Love always acts. And if love refuses to act, I would debate that it's not love. We can talk all we want about loving people... But if we aren't willing to sacrifice and give of ourselves and be uncomfortable with people, we don't really understand what it means to love. You see, we've come to the conclusion that the goal is to win. And Jesus tells us the goal is to love. See, we believe that, that, that the goal is, is to make sure that people know what we believe and that it's right and they're wrong and we have to convince them. And, and the, goal, the goal is to be right. And Jesus keeps telling us with his words and his actions that the goal is to love. Because nobody wants to listen to what we believe until they believe that we care about them, that they're important to us, that we love them. And people have to see that. We need to see it with each other. And everybody out there needs to see it too. And somehow to create a new atmosphere as the body of Christ. That, it, that doesn't jump to judgment. But jumps to embracing and loving people. That that becomes our default response. And it's so counterintuitive to what we normally think and do. It has to be the Holy Spirit in us individually and corporately, but it's the desire of our hearts that the Spirit would change us and and make us a different people who react differently to people that we'd like to reject, but Christ is calling us to accept. That we might want to hate and Christ is calling us to love. We might want to ignore and Christ is calling us to get involved with them. You see, we have this idea that, that this is, and we have this idea, it's only about the people out there. That if we don't do, we don't follow what Jesus is teaching, then the people out there are, are going to suffer. And it's true. But it's just as much about us as it is about them. Because the reality is, if we close ourselves off to other people, we will close ourselves off to God. John tells us in his first letter, again and again and again, you know, it comes at us with waves. In chapter 4, he says, if you, if you say you love God and you hate your brother or sister, you are a liar. If you hate your brother or sister, if you, if you are apathetic towards your brother or sister, if you don't care about other people, what you don't understand is that you don't really care about God. Because they're connected. See, we have this idea that our relationship with God, that's essential. Our relationship with other people, that's negotiable. Nothing could be further from the truth. They're connected to each other. You can't separate them. If you love God, you love people. That's the way it works. And if you don't love people, you don't love God. That's the way it works. They are connected. And we have to come to the realization that as the people of God in this place, they're connected. On on Friday, Lucille Gallup's funeral, her son David was recounting some stories from her life and he told one that grabbed my attention. He said years ago, it was probably back in the late 60s, early 70s, uh, they were living in Pennsylvania, Devere and and Lucille, and and one day... uh, there's a knock at the door, Lucille answered it, and there were two students from Boston University who were there protesting the Vietnam War. So it gives you an idea of the time frame. And, and I got the impression, as David was telling the story, that DeVere and Lucille did not have the same perspective about the war. They did not feel like we ought to be protesting the war. And the students were there trying to garner support about protesting the Vietnam War. And she opened the door, they told her what they, why they were there... And she didn't slam the door in their face. She opened the door and said, come on in. It's a cold, wintry day. Come in. Get warm. She made some hot chocolate, got out some cookies, gave them this food, and they sat and visited for a while. When they got done, she said, now, we want you guys to come back for supper because my husband isn't here, and he would love to talk with you. So you guys come back for supper tonight. And they came back for supper, and, and they ate together, and they, and they discussed their various viewpoints together over dinner. And then they left. I have no idea what impact that might have made on those students. But as I heard that story, I thought that's what the church should be. We don't have to agree. We don't have to we don't have to conform. We shouldn't. But we're called to love. We're called to be kind and gentle. We're called to feel compassion for people, to care about them. And not so that we can can convince them about Jesus as much as we want to do that. We just love them. And I've found that when we simply love people, genuinely love people, they want to hear about Jesus. Because they know they're cared for. We set up this tree here in front. And if you were part of the prayer vigil, you saw that in the prayer room. As everyone finished their hour of prayer, they wrote their name on one of those leaves and put it on the tree. And it's going to be up here for the next few weeks. And what I love about this is that it reminds us of our diversity. It reminds us that we're in the kingdom because at some point in time, somebody embraced and loved us. And we hear that call to be that same kind of church for other people. As I thought about that tree, I was thinking about what kind of tree might people perceive us as a church to be? Do people perceive us as as a man-eating tree? That they want to get as much distance from us as they possibly can? Or do they see us as a peach tree with these luscious, delicious peaches hanging on limbs that they can't stay away from. And they come and they eat and their lives are blessed and they're filled because they're attracted to this tree we call the Houghton Church. And the answer the answer to that question is, is eternal for us and for others. I want us to take a moment to think about a person, a group of people that we find difficult to think about embracing and loving them. And in this moment of silence, ask God to put them into our minds And to begin to unlock our hearts, to begin to open our hearts individually and corporately toward them. That God might give us loving hearts. Father we want to have a relationship with you that is open so make us open loving embracing to people that we find we find it difficult to do that help us as individuals to want your transforming work in us and help us as a church to be different. And we ask this through Christ Jesus. Amen. I want us to do something this week. I want you to think about that person, that group of people, whoever, whoever came to your mind. And I want you to ask God to show you one thing that you can do as an expression of love and kindness toward them. I don't know what that will be. I don't even know how easy it will be to do that. But I think if we're going to ask God to help us love, he's going to ask us to do something. So I want to encourage you, strongly encourage you, to ask God to show you what you can do, to begin the process of transforming your heart and our hearts as his people. Let's stand as we sing the closing hymn. Receive the benediction. In the words of the Apostle Paul to the church at Thessalonica, may God make your love increase and overflow toward each other and everyone else, just as ours does for you. And may he strengthen you in your spirit that you will be holy and blameless in the presence of our God and Father when Jesus comes with all of his holy. Amen.